Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, excited to get into God's word with you this morning. Uh, but want to highlight a couple of things that you heard on the welcome video and just remind you there's some really uh, important information in your guide about the coming weeks and just what we're going to be experiencing at River Tree South, at the Cove campus, as we get ready for the downtown launch. And so we've got a few Sundays left uh, where people are kind of sitting where they typically sit and are involved in the campuses where they've been attending. Uh, but those are, are going to change. And over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to have some services leading up to uh, the downtown launch that I just want you to be aware of. I uh, want you to be, in, uh, be prayerful about that. As you heard the opportunity to serve in children's ministry, uh, what Becky and Lady talked about with Worship One, Serve One uh, is special in that they're not just serving uh, within the life of, of the church, but they're also uh, experiencing a really special friendship and community, which we love that about the way that service works and the way that our Sunday mornings uh, offer themselves towards community. But if you're not serving currently, uh, we had a chance to highlight children's ministry last Sunday. And as you hear announcement about that again today, uh, if you're here at South or at the Cove campus and would like to learn more about children's ministry, there really are a lot of opportunities, uh, particularly at the downtown campus as we open up, but also here at the Cove campus for people to get involved and to experience a lot of what you heard Lady and Becky talk about uh, as far as their own opportunity to just pour into uh, the kids and the next generation here at River Tree, but to experience a really special friendship and to serve alongside people uh, that God may put in your life uh, for a really special time. So uh, find the table out in the lobby if you're at the Cove campus or in the back of the room and find out more about children's ministry before you leave today. We are in the gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14. We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna end up wrapping up Mark right around Easter. Uh, and these last couple chapters that we have of Mark are really um, these last few moments, experiences, hours that Jesus offers us of, of his earthly ministry. And so we've been making our way through the, the Lord's Supper into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is, uh, the name means olive press, and the, the feeling and the weight and the burden that Jesus began to experience as he was praying in the garden, uh, God was giving him a taste, insight into what the cross would be for his, his experience. And as Jesus took a step <clears throat> towards the cross, we began to see just the level of obedience that Jesus walked in, the level of devotion to the will of God and to the glory of God that uh, rises up out of that passage, rises up out of that prayer of Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done. And today I wanna look at that next moment in the garden where Judas and this detachment of Roman soldiers and officials come to arrest Jesus. And so look at with me, Mark chapter 14, verse 43. It says, just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, 
and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You know, when we observe the New Testament writers, particularly the gospel writers about the life and ministry of Jesus, there are often themes or echoes from the Old Testament that kind of are, are, are kind of woven into the story that are give the reader kind of more insight into certain things that have happened and that are happening. And I would offer you this, that Jesus' arrest in the garden is certainly one of those situations. As Judas returns uh, with this Roman soldier detachment, uh, with officials and those from the high priest, uh, they have come to arrest Jesus. And so I, I want us to look at a couple things. I want us to look at one, what is this question that Jesus asks about a rebellion? Why is that significant? What is he saying about this idea of a revolt or kingdoms being turned over? And the second thing I want you to see is this context of the garden. Because what Mark is offering us is this question about rebellion in a garden will take us places. Will, will remind us of some things that, that God has been doing uh, since the beginning that will hopefully show us about how we're to live when we leave here. So John's gospel, not just Mark's gospel, but John's gospel actually draws out for us uh, a detail that I want you to see about the arrest. As Jesus and the disciples are leaving the upper room, they leave the upper room and they cross over to the garden. And John talks about this in John chapter 18, verse one. It says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now, this is where John picks up with what Mark talked about. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, what John offers us, different than Mark, is this detail of the Kidron Valley. And, and for any of John's readers, and anybody kind of under, with, a, with an understanding of the Old Testament, there was something about the Kidron Valley that is supposed to signal the reader. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and John uses this kind of real geographical marker for a couple reasons. One, Throughout the New Testament, the gospel writers are often recording specific landmarks, specific historical sites within their recording, within their account of Jesus' life and ministry, so that you know these things really happened. That there are people with names, there are people, there are places with names that you can go back and verify these things, that these geographical markers are so that you and I can have a, kind of a, a verified reliability that what's being said here is true. But there's something else that is happening in John's gospel as he references the Kidron Valley, because the Kidron Valley is a moment within God's people, the history of God's people, where King David crossed through the Kidron Valley during a revolt while his son Absalom was trying to overthrow him, while a rebellion was going on. And it says this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives. 
weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. What, what's happening in 2 Samuel is this moment where Absalom, David's son, tries to overthrow his kingdom to replace him. And it's the Kidron Valley is this kind of this geographical landmark of betrayal. It was something that had happened there. It was, and I don't know if there are places in your life that you don't like to go back to. They just have memories. They have bad experiences. If you go there to this particular place, there's a certain experience, there's a certain kind of sense of history there that you tend to avoid. And I would offer you this, that as John includes the Kidron Valley here, he is saying something about the King David, now about the son of David, Jesus, as it relates to betrayal. We see Judas now coming to Jesus in this way of approaching him intimately, <clears throat> giving him a kiss. And this kiss was a sign of respect. It was a sign of, <clears throat> excuse me, of honor. And, but it's, it's disguised. It, it's not respect. It's not honor. There is some deceit behind Judas's kiss. And it deepens the narrative when you understand what David experienced with his own son, what David writes in Psalm 55, he says this, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend. So this is what we see in 2 Samuel. This is what we see in Psalm 55. And, and all of that kind of begins to create this frame of this theme of betrayal, this theme of rebellion, this theme of overthrowing kind of the king and replacing him, supplanting him with someone else. And so as this armed detachment shows up, it seems to be this moment of Jesus that he is watching, thank you, of the arrest that's coming to him. Thank you. It's this armed detachment. And and an attachment of Roman soldiers could be up to a hundred people. And it seems to be this that Jesus notices. Why have you come to me with clubs and swords? It's, it's this kind of ready battled kind of display that they are there in force. They are ready to subdue Jesus, to take the disciples. And, and Jesus is saying, for what? Like, why have you shown up like this? Why have you brought such kind of an entourage, such force? It seems like this is what Jesus is speaking to. And, and a rebellion, a rebellion was a, a, a kind of a movement of violence to overthrow a particular leader and to install a new kingdom. And, and kingdoms were made of values. A kingdom is an administration. It's, it's a system of priorities and values that begin to shape behavior, shape culture, Within a kingdom, within certain values and priorities, there's certain behavior that is rewarded. There's certain behavior that is punished. Uh, kingdoms have kind of a, a value system, a priorities in which they, again, they, they create behavior, they shape culture. Uh, a great example of that is in the, in the coaching carousel of the uh, Southeastern Conference. It, it makes for great drama every year as your favorite team loses just a couple more games than it should have, the coach is on the hot seat, he loses the rival game at the end of the year, and he is fired. And then the conversations begin. Well, who's gonna replace him? 
and a new coach is secured. And with the new coach, right, there's this, a new system, new ideas. Finally, we're going to win games. And all the assistant coaches are kind of put before the head coach. And if they can't implement the system, if they can't get with the program, if they don't embody these new values, these new core ideas, well, they're going to be replaced. They go out with the old and in come the new. And we see that all the time. And a kingdom is very much like that. A kingdom has a certain lift of priorities and values and things that they believe in. And this is what's happening here. But the problem with, we, with rebellions, at least the ones that we're all familiar with, is they simply institute the same values that were there before. That for the kingdoms that we're familiar with, it's always about strength, military force, wealth, financial power, political power. These are the kind of the essentials for how things get done, for how culture is shaped, for how people's behavior is controlled. That's how things are accomplished. It always moves back to power. It always moves back to reputation. It always moves back to wealth. The leaders are replaced in every kingdom we're aware of, in every revolution we've ever experienced, but the systems don't change. And this is what we're beginning to see. Jesus has been talking for at length, for, for most of his ministry, about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And the things that he is beginning to institute, the things that he is beginning to bring in, the values, the system, the way that people's lives could be shaped versus the way that the world works. And so when Judas shows up in the garden with a Roman detachment of swords and clubs, Jesus looks at him and says, you clearly don't understand what I've been saying. Like, why are you here with battle ready in this show of force? I've been in your presence teaching all the time. Why come at me like this? In other words, Jesus is revealing that they have greatly missed what he has been saying for a long time. The kingdom of God, it values differently. It values differently. Different, there are different ways of getting things done. Jesus isn't saying that he isn't bringing a revolution. It's just a different one than anybody's ever experienced. There's not a reference point for what Jesus is saying. And so Judas and others kind of keep imposing old ideas, old values, old systems on top of who Jesus is and what he's saying. But Jesus is saying something distinctly different. And you can go to Matthew and begin to read Jesus' kind of Sermon on the Mount. And Luke chapter 6 kind of succinctly says many of the things that the Sermon on the Mount says. And I want you to just hear, what does Jesus say about the kingdom of God? How does he contrast what he's bringing in, what he's inaugurating, and the kingdom of this world? Here's what he says in verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. 
for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus makes this comment and, and he, it's saying in a different way, it's lucky and fortunate, this idea of blessed. Lucky and fortunate are those who are without, those who ache, those who long. Lucky and fortunate are those who experience brokenness and long for the world to be different. Lucky, fortunate are those who are misunderstood, who are insulted, who are criticized because they believe in something different. Lucky are those who feel the disdain of others, but woe, woe to you. Woe to you if you have more than what you need. Woe to you if you live within comfort. Woe to you if you don't experience sadness that is only the good things. Woe to you if everyone speaks well of you in this world. Jesus is saying something incredibly significant for us because there's a reversal of values going on. Do you hear that? Like the very things that the kingdom prizes, the world pities. Who here doesn't want to be liked? Who here doesn't want to be comfortable? Who here doesn't want to be fed or prosperous? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the value system of the kingdom of God. That those values, those priorities, are, those are the things that are passing away. It's weakness, it's poverty, it's suffering. And who in the room would be like, what? Like, that doesn't sound right. It's not survival of the weakest, it's survival of the fittest. Like, why are we prizing these things? These are not the things that help us prosper. You need to scheme. That's how you advance. And Jesus is raising up values that you and I do our best to avoid. That somehow this other-centered, sacrificial humility is the thing that is most true, is, is part of what Jesus is bringing in. It's, it's the values and the priorities of this kingdom of God that's being installed. Well, who can do that? Who can make that jump? Who can go from all of these things of being wealthy, of being comfortable, of being well-fed, of being well-liked, and turn from those things and begin to identify with all these other things? Who can do that? That's a great question. Because in the midst of this, Jesus' own disciple picks up a sword and starts swinging it. Verse 47, even those closest to him, it's not just Judas and the soldiers, and the religious officials that are missing it, even Jesus' own disciples, we know this disciple to be Peter. The other gospels kind of reveal him, that Peter's the one that picks up a sword and cuts the ear off one of the high priest officials named Malchus. And what does Jesus do? I mean, Jesus kind of picks it back up and kind of puts it back on his head. That's a weird moment, isn't it? Like here's Peter defending Jesus right? Doing everything he knows that's right, grabs a sword. He wasn't aiming for the guy's ear, right? 
He's not that good. I mean, he's aiming for this guy's head. He misses. And I think, isn't that us? Like we're doing our best and yet we're still missing. And this is what happens with Peter. He's trying hard and yet he's missing because he doesn't really understand how different the kingdom of God is than the kingdom of the world. He is trying to enter into the kingdom of God holding on to old values, old ways, old priorities. This thing that Jesus is offering us, it is altogether different. I just, I just kind of took a step back and I just started thinking of, he comes as an infant vulnerable and fully human, yet with an entourage of angels. He sleeps within the hull of a boat as a storm rages to wake up and then quiet it. He touches people that are typically untouchable, and yet those that try to lay their hands on him and seize him, he slips out of their hands. He cries at the tomb of Lazarus, and then in a breath, in a word, calls him back to life. He is different. And Peter is, Peter is trying to defend and fight for Jesus at the same time Jesus is healing people. Peter's got to be thinking, I don't understand. Jesus is asking the question, am I leading a rebellion that you must come to me with swords and clubs in the dark to arrest me? I love it. Jesus is questioning them. Here is an entourage, a a representation of humanity coming to arrest God. And Jesus says, you think you're coming for me, but I'm here for you. I'm, I'm here to find you. So what do we do with this last detail? You know, Mark adds this, the other gospels don't, but Mark adds this about this young man who kind of escapes the scene of arrest without any clothes on. Now, what do we do with that? So here's what's, what's interesting and what I love about this passage is you know, church tradition is, they're not quite sure who this guy is, but, but many believe that this is the writer of this gospel, that this is young Mark who has penned this gospel for Peter. And so Mark, part of this, a follower of Jesus, in the middle of all this, kind of leaves the scene, feels like it's better to escape the scene without any clothes on than, than to stay. And a couple of thoughts there. One, I just, in other words, everybody got it wrong. Whether you were coming with clubs, swords, whether you were abandoning Jesus, whether you were fleeing, like nobody got this right. But the other thing that I love about this, and I, I think this is what, what Mark is offering us as an insight here, that it goes into a biblical moment as John kind of went back to capture something for us with this Kidron Valley and this place of betrayal and the King David and the son of David. What Mark does in this moment is he tells us about a man who left this garden naked. And to, leave, and, and to be naked within biblical times, to be seen naked or found naked was to be in shame. It was shameful. And so Mark is telling us that there was someone who left the garden in shame. He's, he's taking us back even further. He's taking us back to something even older. N.T. Wright says, what we see in the garden this time is sinful men, violent men, men with weapons, coming to the garden in the dark, looking for someone, 
Like all humans, they are looking for God, but they don't know what they are doing. And then he says, the new Adam stepping forward to deal with the old, the word who was and is God comes to greet the world. The light of the world stands before those in their darkness have come with torches and lanterns. Mark's gospel is taking us back to a garden, a garden where people left in shame. Mark's gospel with this moment of this young man fleeing naked is reminding us that the first Adam failed in the garden, but the second Adam in Jesus is winning it back. And if you remember the story that when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they weren't allowed to re-enter, that God placed something. You remember what this was? At, at kind of at the, at the entrance. He placed a, a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword that moved left and right so that you could not come back into the garden. And this sword was the symbol of God's divine justice. It was the symbol of God's righteous wrath being poured out on all sin, on all transgression. And what we realize, what Jesus is doing right now in this garden, in Gethsemane, is Jesus is going to go under the sword for us. That Jesus is going to experience the sword so that we don't have to. Jesus is going to experience the sword so that we can drop ours. so that the fighting will end, so that we can go back into the garden, so that the garden would be restored, that the place that we had to leave in shame will be opened up to us because of Christ and because of what he will suffer. I wanna tell you, Jesus is in full charge of this moment. He has been waiting for Judas and this Roman guard. And it's not going to be by the sword that what needs to be accomplished in this moment will be accomplished, but it'll be by the power and the mission of God. Peter thinks that he will grab the hilt of the sword and he will do something in this moment, but it's not what Peter's doing in this moment that's important. It's what Jesus is doing in this moment. And it won't be by the sword that ultimately the kingdom of God comes and what is accomplished, it'll be by the cross. And this is so important for us as followers of Christ, of how we fight and what we battle with and what we do, that it's not by the sword that we accomplish our greatest victories. It's not by the sword that we enter into the kingdom of God. It's through suffering. It's not how you fight, it's how you suffer. And what you begin to see here is there's something very different in place, that it's a reminder for us that all the things that we think we need to be fighting for, all the things that we think we need to defend it's really how we suffer. And I love when we get perspective on someone like Peter. When we have this moment in Peter's life where he grabs a sword and he cuts off somebody's ear, and then later on in Peter's life, we hear him encouraging the church. We, we read his writings and, and when, listen for how Peter's life has changed. How the things that he now values, the things that he now expresses as part of his life and important. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter three. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is a guy who grabs a sword and starts chopping off ears. Do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's saying that living within the kingdom of God, living in what Jesus has inaugurated, living what Jesus is installing for us is a life that does not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. It's a life that when you experience evil, you bless. And if we defend anything, we defend the hope that we have that Christ has endured the sword for us. That's our hope. That's what we cling to. We fight by honoring Christ, by staying loving, by staying humble, not repaying evil for evil, not hurt for hurt. This is altogether something different. Jesus is a most difficult role model but he's a wonderful savior. In other words, if you're looking at Jesus and the, the, the qualities of Christianity and the, the values that you see Jesus living by and your hope is, is to implement some of Jesus' sacrifice and some of his humility and some of the service that he offers into your life to be a better person, you will be crushed by what Christ begins to offer us in the kingdom of God. But if you lay down your sword, if you surrender, if you see Jesus on the cross for you, then Jesus will give you his life in the living. That there will be a power and a work of the kingdom of God in you when things are difficult, when things are hard, when you are without, when you are broken, when you are weak, when you are insulted, when you are losing, that the kingdom of God is more near to you in those moments than you believe, than you know. And when that happens, when you realize that Jesus endured the sword for you, when that happens, when, when you realize that he took the sword so that you can let yours down, what happens in your life and my life, we become free that the next kind of set of arresting circumstances that you walk through, that you don't have to reach for the hilt. You aren't fighting and battling anymore. You're not a person who's looking for revenge. You're, you're free from that. You're no longer returning evil with evil, but you're looking to bless. You're free. Like you're a free person because you're no longer defined and controlled by the promotion that you did or didn't get because your life is now no longer connected within this system of significance or your reputation and who you are. That's a system that has passed away. You're free. You experience a new set of, uh, a new experience of freedom because no longer are you worried about kind of financial ruin because you realize God is already going to give you more. God is going to bless you that there is something more coming. You don't realize, you don't have to worry about not having enough. You're also free from the trap of financial success. 
and worrying about losing everything that you have because your life is no longer defined by the things that define this world and this kingdom of wealth and stature and reputation. It's no longer about power. It's no longer about force. It's no longer about intellectual achievement. It's no longer about people esteeming you and your reputation being something more. It's no longer about those things that Jesus has endured the cross. Jesus has suffered and in so opened up the kingdom to us, opened up the garden to us so that we might experience a different kind of life altogether. And so now that your security is no longer connected to a kingdom that's passing away, but your security and who you are is connected to a kingdom that is coming. And our power is it's connected to you and I declaring the identity of Jesus as the one who is our true king, the one who did switch out the old system for the new. It changes everything for us. When we become free people, Living in this way, you become a liberated person because your life is no longer connected to what's passing. Your life is not connected to what's now coming. So the question I would ask you just as we begin to wrap up is where is your fight right now? Where are you gathering force? Where are you creating your position Where's your fight? Where do you see the battle? In what way are you reaching for the hilt of the sword again? This moment of Jesus willing to just suffer, to sacrifice and to serve becomes the the avenue into the kingdom of God. It's, It's still the way the kingdom of God is wired And as we begin to give up the battle, we find out that Jesus is fighting for us, that Jesus endured the sword so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could drop ours, so that we could be someone who now experiences the difficulties of this world, the insults of the world, the evil of this world, and wonderfully bless, wonderfully love. And you can't do that on your own. But through the power of Christ in you, you can. His life in you. You can't. What would it look like in the place of contention in your life right now? What would it look like in the place where you know there's a battle for the kingdom of God to begin to push through? For those values, for those priorities to be expressed. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way that the old system, the old kingdom is undone. That through suffering, through sacrifice, that a real power is present as we proclaim the one who suffered for us. As we love, as we serve. God, this morning I pray that each of us might find this new freedom that we can drop our swords because Jesus, you went under it. You endured the sword. God, this morning, how are we still gathering wealth, reputation, 
strength to get what we want? And what would it look like for the deeper ethic of love to be, to be seen in our lives, to have its way? God, I pray for each person here that as they begin to think about their challenges, their difficulties, God, that we would bring those before you. God, if we're working off an old page, an old kingdom value, God, that we would realize that you are altogether different. And because you endured the cross, because you suffered, there is now something open to us, a new way to live, a freer way to be than we've ever experienced before. And it begins with surrendering. So God, let us renew our commitment to you again today to surrender our lives to you, to lay down our swords because you endured it for us. God, help, help this deeper ethic of love begin to surface in our life to know what it looks like to love and to bless and to serve and to be gentle and to defend this hope that we have that what Christ endured, he endured for us to create a new kingdom and a new way and a new life. God, let us step into that through the power and the work of Christ. In his name we pray.